Alright, hello and welcome once again to Adventures Among Ideas. Today, I am talking about something called the Limits of Pluralism. The Limits of Pluralism um, debate, I'm going to call it. This is part one of the debate about Wayne Booth. So, does a poem have a meaning? How do we know what it means? How do we know what a poem means? Or a book, or a novel, whatever a play. Where do we look for the meaning of such a thing? Is the meaning simply in the words? Is it in the context in which the poem or novel or play, whatever, was written? Is it in the author's intention? Should we look for the author's intention? Is it in the reader? Is the meaning in the reader and the reader's experience? Well, these questions were the focus of a debate that occurred in 1977, which went under the heading of the limits of pluralism. At one level, the debate was over um, pluralism in literary criticism specifically, and specifically in the world, in the field of literary criticism. So this is the idea that multiple interpretations of a poem or novel are valid, it's the idea of pluralism. Is this the case? Or is it the case that there is only one best or true interpretation of a novel or a poem? This would be the idea of monism. Only one, there's one best interpretation. Or is any interpretation fine? This would be more of a relativism. As we'll see, everyone in the debate, in the limits of pluralism debate, can be called a pluralist, but for different reasons. Um, and certain of their pluralisms seem to be mutually incompatible. They rest on, these different pluralisms rest on uh, incompatible assumptions about uh, literary interpretation. So that's one level of the debate. It's about literary criticism. Another level, at another level, the debate, uh, the debate was about whether literary criticism, as it had been mainly practiced up to this point, up to that point, was a valid enterprise at all. Um, is literary criticism, as commonly understood, even possible? I mean, it's done, but is it actually theoretically a, a theoretically theoretically viable enterprise? Um, and the flip side of this was whether deconstructive or postmodern criticism were valid enterprises. So Jacques Derrida had become very influential in the U.S. by this time, especially in the field of um, literary theory more so than in uh, American philosophy. Um, and Derrida's philosophy seemed to suggest that texts, texts had no determinate meanings. We'll come back to this word a lot, determinate meanings. But um, is this a claim that, and is this a claim, this, this, it, um, is this claim that texts do not have determinate meanings, something that could be determined, itself determined to be true? Or was it, is it a sim simply uh, a certain conclusion following from premises that may or may not themselves be true? We may, may just hold them for practical reasons. And is this claim about texts not having determinate meaning simply fo following from certain premises? Uh, and then again, on an even more general level, the debate was an expression within literary criticism of a crisis of meaning or an epistemological crisis that had uh, that seems to be just endemic to modern Western culture. Intellectuals, intellectuals had been grappling with this crisis of meaning since at least the 18th century. So it's this more, much broader on, more ongoing crisis. 
but it had become, uh, seems to have become particularly acute in the 1960s and 1970s. So when this debate started to come up. Uh, so the debate has a complicated history, if you look about it, if you think about it in a larger context. But I just want to uh, mention here it's more limited history. So the debate can be said to have been instigated by the publication of a book called Natural Supernaturalism, Tradition and Revolution in Romantic Literature. This was written by M.H. Abrams, one of the, who had become one of the most, well, one of the central participants in the debate. And Abrams was a major force in literary criticism of this time. And uh, the publication of this book, Natural Supernaturalism, was recognized right away as an important event. And pretty much every notable uh, romanticist living at the time, uh, 1960s, 1970s, uh, commented on the book in writing. For our purposes, for the purposes of the next uh, few videos, and for today, the most important review of the book was by J. Hillis Miller, a name that some people will also know. Uh, Miller was, uh, J. Hillis Miller was at that time becoming the foremost American proponent of deconstructionism. And he was a central, uh, a central figure in what came to be called the Yale School of Literary Criticism, kind of a, influenced a lot by deconstructionism, by French philosophy. Uh, Miller respected Abrams, Abrams's accomplishment in natural supernaturalism, but he also questioned Abrams's critical assumptions and methodologies. He questioned the basis of um, Abrams's accomplishment, even while he also respected and admired it in some ways. Uh, so Miller's review came out in 1972. Again, Natural Supernaturalism was published 1971. Miller's review came out in 1972. Other reviews, of course, came out around that same time. But then four years later, in 1976, Wayne Booth, who I'm going to focus on today, um, Wayne Booth, another well-known literary critic and founder of something called rhetorical criticism, and who was based at the University of Chicago. Uh, so Wayne Booth attempted to make sense of Abrams's own writings and the, uh, the responses to them by other critics up to this point. Um, this article was then in turn responded to by Abrams. And uh, in their articles, both Booth and Abrams made some kind of gentle, but gentle, gentle attacks or criticisms against deconstructionism in general and Miller, J. Hillis Miller in particular. Uh, these articles were published in the journal Critical Inquiry, Critical Inquiry, which had been co-founded in 1974 by Booth and other people, of course. Uh, another co-founder of the uh, journal Critical Inquiry was Sheldon Sachs, who became the editor of the journal. And Sachs also happened to be the chairman of something called the, uh, this was a new, a new thing, the new Division on Philosophical Approaches to Literature which was part of the Modern Language Association, the MLA. Modern Language Association, the MLA is the uh, uh, just the main organization in the US for language and literature scholars. So Sachs and the other committee members of the Division on Philosophical Approaches to Literature asked Abrams, Booth, and Miller to each present their views and respond to each other at the annual MLA meeting. And that's always kind of a big deal. Um, so after this happened, so the MLA meeting happened, after this, uh, versions of their papers, of Booth's, Abrams's, and Miller's papers were published in Critical Inquiry in 1977, and then 
responses were invited from other people as well. So aside from these central articles by Booth, Abrams, and Miller, there were responses by James R. Kincaid and Morse Peckham. Kincaid, by the way, is still, I believe, a professor at the University of Southern California. Um, at least when I tried checking, that's what it said. Um, uh, then there was um, a response uh, to Kincaid by Robert D. Denham, so I, who I think is also still an English professor. Um, he's at Roanoke College, as far as I know. Um, and then also uh, a response to Peckham by Abrams. Of course, Peckham's and Abrams are now deceased. Uh, there was also an exchange of letters in the journal between Rene Wellek, a somewhat older romanticist, more or less a generation older than the others, approximately. Um, so there was an exchange of letters in the journal between Rene Wellick and Wayne Booth. Uh, there was also some lasting re repercussions to this debate. A number of a number of books seem to have come out of it or been influenced by the debate, aside from the uh, aside from books by those involved, such as the collaborative volume Deconstruction and Criticism, uh, and Booth's own book, Critical Understanding, The Powers and Limits of Pluralism, which he was working on at this time. Uh, there was also books by, uh, there were also books by others, like Barbara Ernstein Smith's On the Margins of Discourse, which seems closely related to the debate. I want to try to outline the main views. In this video, I'm just going to talk about Wayne Booth, since I've already been talking for a while at this point. And in future videos, I'll uh, try to talk about the remaining critics. I think they're all very interesting and important in their own ways, and it would be, I think it's worth going through them in some detail, because um, they're all major figures in literary, uh, literary criticism and um, in their relations to philosophy. They're all very interesting. Okay, so anyway, Booth. Uh, Booth's essay is called Preserving the Exemplar, his um, essay in the kind of official limits of pluralism debate. It's called uh, Preserving the Exemplar, Exemplar, or How Not to Dig Our Own Graves. Uh, Booth begins his essay by sorting out some of the many questions hidden in our initial question about whether meaning can be determinate, is what he says. So they've got this um, basic issue they're supposed to be talking about. Can meaning be determinate or is meaning always indeterminate? And he says there is many questions hidden in this question. So is there in all texts, or at least in some texts, what Abrams calls a core of determinate meanings, uh, Booth writes, the central core of what they, the authors, undertook to communicate? So is there some determinate meaning that the authors uh, were trying to communicate that we can discover? Uh, so this, for Booth, leads to a second question. Where is the text located? Where is the text? Where is the text that is supposed to have either determinate or unlimited meanings? Where's the text? The que uh, this question is not, this question is not as easy to answer as you might think. Um, is the text just a system of signs materialized on paper or sound in sound? Is the text an act? something done that uses a system of signs? Is the text an external object over here? Is the text something that exists only in the experience of the reader? It seems that where we believe the text to be will influence our view of the text's meaning and how we try to find out about it. 
So if the meat, the um, the text is just in the reader's experience, we're going to be looking there to try to figure out what the text means. If the text is um, contained in a uh, contained in the in an ex external object, we're going to be looking at the object. How did this object come into being? Maybe or um, where is the meaning in the object? How does meaning come out of the object? How does it put into the object? Something like that. So where we uh, where we think the text is is going to influence how we think about its meaning. Uh, and even within within this question of the location of the text, there are many other questions. If the text is just the reader's experience, what is the nature of this experience? Do different readers necessarily have different experiences? Uh, we certainly seem to bring a similar set of conventions to our reading experience, at least in any particular time, uh, a set of readers is probably going to bring a similar set of conventions to looking at a text. Uh, and yet there also seem to be many differences depending on the characteristics of the readers, right? Readers in different times, readers in different um, socioeconomic classes of different ethnicities and so forth. There might be bringing different things to the text um, or creating different kinds of texts in their experience. So then consider um, a new, Booth asks us to then consider a new version of question one. Are we right to rule out at least some readings? Are there limitations on what we can legitimately do to a text? Booth thinks everyone is going to answer yes. Um, right? Literary criticism only accepts some things some ways of looking at a text, some ways of treating a text, but not just any way, right? Then again, do different kinds of texts allow for different degrees of determinacy? So that is, do some texts have greater ambiguity or polysemy than others, like multiple meanings? Are some texts more open to multiple meanings? Quite possibly, yes. But how do we determine which is which? How do we determine which texts or which parts of texts have greater determinacy and which, part, uh, which texts or which parts of texts have lesser determinacy? Is there one right method to determine how semantically open a text is? Um, or are there many valid methods for determining this? And what are the standards for these methods? And if there are multiple standards how are you supposed to know which one to use in which situation these are all very complicated questions uh, but all, all of this leads into yet another question is there a uh, so booth writes is there a true variety of legitimate critical purposes what exactly is the critic supposed to be doing and is this one thing or is it many things historically uh, many critics have supposed they were they were pursuing uh, pursuing a true interpretation of a literary work other critics have had more practical aims. They have wanted to affect the readers in some way, to interpret literature in order to affect society, society, right? To do something good for society. Uh, Booth says this about some of his critics of his time. So we, now he describes a bunch of, kind of in brief, describes a bunch of critics working at that time. So he's, he's, Booth says, Mr. J uh, Miller, J. Hillis Miller himself offers a criticism that will, like poetry, cure the reader, warning that the new uncanny critic must be nimble. Uh, Monsieur Bart, Roland Bart, offers us a freedom from boredom by an escape from repetition into novelty and creativity, a liberation of the significant. 
Mr. Bloom, Harold Bloom, while seeking to convince us throughout his recent works that there are no interpretations but only misinterpretations, consistently offers us an escape from our repressive fathers and insists that his efforts uh, that his effort should serve as an example for others. Mr. Fish, Stanley Fish, offers to interest us rather than bore us with soundness. Monsieur Derrida, Jacques Derrida, seeks a free play amounting to a uh, methodical craziness to the end of a dissemination of texts that is endless and treacherous, treacherous and terrifying, yet liberating us to an arance joyeuse, a joyful wandering. So, well, Booth has some pointed questions for this new species of critic. First, so he's got some questions to ask these critics who want to liberate us, who want to enliven us, make us creative, and so on. He asks first, <clears throat> uh, do you proscribe more kinds of valuable talk about literature than you invite? That is, are you or are you not helping to open up more interesting or useful discussions about literature? However, we define that. On the surface, of course, a lot of the critics I just mentioned, they sound like they're opening up new ways of talking about literature. But are they? Or are they saying this is the way we should talk about literature? Um, so what kinds of um, talk about literature do you invite or do you or are you blocking out? Uh, so second, sec a second question, are you offering to vitalize your, uh, only yourself or me as well? Are you just entertaining and or enhancing yourself, your own experience through your criticism, or are you doing something as well for other readers? Are you inviting readers into the project of inquiry, inquiry, or are you just showing off what you can do? Are you able to teach the reader your method, or are you attempting to exclude certain kinds of readers? Okay, and then a third question. So the first two questions are about the, the relationship between the critic and the reader of the critic, right? So the first two questions, um, again, where are you um, prescribing more kinds of talk about literature than you invite? Uh, are you vitalizing only yourself or me as well? So the third kind of, the third question is more about the uh, relationship between the critic and the author he critiques. So does the critic show a sense of community, of comradeship with the author that he's, he or she is um, criticizing, writing about, interpreting? Or does the critic habitually show a kind of contempt or superiority to the authors he or she writes about? Okay, and then the fourth, this fourth question, uh, the fourth question builds out of this. Is there a single standard of justice operating? So we get to the question of justice. So in other words, does the, does the critic judge everyone, including uh, him or herself, by the same standard? So Booth here is thinking of more of the relationship between critics, between critic and critic. Does the critic agree to be judged by the standard he uh, himself applies to others, Booth writes? Does the critic agree to be judged by the same standard by which the critic judges other people? Or is there some double standard at play? The critic expects to be understood, right? Critics expect to be understood. And decon uh, deconstructionist critics in particular have been concerned about being misunderstood, just like everyone else. So therefore, the logic goes they should try to understand the authors or texts they themselves write about, 
on those authors' own terms. You know, they, the deconstructionists want to be understood on their terms, should they not try to understand other authors, other critics on their own terms. To always be wanting to show how a text, text means something different from what the author thought it meant, as deconstruct, deconstructionists often do, while wanting your own text to mean what you think it means, is to be unjust to the other author. At least so it would seem. This is essentially the golden rule of criticism. Uh, and uh, Booth actually talks about this elsewhere, the golden rule of criticism. Uh, treat other authors as you would wish to be treated. Review as you would wish to be reviewed. Uh, if you think the meaning of your own writing is determinate, treat the writing of others as if it too had a determinate meaning and vice versa. If you think um, other writers, the writings of other writers do not, does not have a determinate meaning, then you can't expect your own writing to have a determinate meaning. Uh, and finally, the fifth question. Last question. Does the critic either acknowledge the superior superiority of the texts he deconstructs over his own readings or genuinely earn his claim to superiority? So if you think you're superior, uh, superior, so this is a question of superiority. Do you acknowledge that um, the texts you are critiquing are superior to yours, or do you earn your um, superiority, your claim to superiority over those texts? Uh, Booth thinks that the presumption of superiority should be at first on the side of any classic as against the critic. So if you're criticizing a classic text, our presumption of superiority should be on the side of that text, that classic, right? It's a classic for some reason, right? So we should assume at least at the beginning that it's the superior text. Um, <clears throat> so Booth thinks that if you deny the authority of the author, the superiority of the authors, such as say Balzac, uh, Shakespeare, Balzac, someone like that, then you better be able to write at least as well as them. You better be able to actually put your money where your mouth is, be actually write in a superior way. Um, so these are the kinds of limits. So, so working through these questions, you can get a sense of the kinds of limits that Booth would place on pluralism. So on the interpretation of texts. But notice that they are ethical limits. I think this is really interesting. So they seem to be ethical limits. They're not about the, the methods of criticism per se, but they're about how we treat each other as authors and critics and readers, how we treat texts, kind of the, um, and how we treat the authors of texts. In the end, Booth seems to suggest that any method is fine so long as we treat each other ethically. This is not quite his position. He wrote a book after this called um, Critical Understanding, where he makes more uh, specific his own version of pluralism. But um, at least in this opening article, which is not really meant to present his um, position so much, it's meant to kind of open the discussion. Um, but he seems to suggest that any method is fine, so long as we treat each other in an, in an ethical way. Uh, different methods get different results, and that's fine. We don't all need to be doing the same thing. If we want to get at the historical truth of a text, we'll use one kind of method. If we want to expand our sense of the possible meanings of, of a text, we'll use a different kind of method. And Booth concludes uh, by writing, if the first commandment issued by my commonwealth of critics is pursue someone chosen monism as well as you can, the second is like unto it. Give your neighbor's monism a fair shake. So basically he wants us to 
um, pursue some project, some meth uh, methodological project as well as we can, while also respecting the projects of our neighbors. So one way to look at how pluralism, the variety of possible interpretations of a text, of ways of looking at a text, of finding out the meaning of a text, one way to look at this pluralism and how it ought to be limited is as a variety of monisms pursued ethically with relation to each other, where each monism realize it's, realizes its debt to other monisms and judges each according to their own standards. And I have to admit, I find this ethics-based way of thinking about criticism enticing, intriguing. Um, I relate to it. I mentioned earlier that there was an exchange of letters between Wayne Booth and Rene Wellick. Wellick had some complaints about how he was portrayed in Booth's article, actually speaking of um, judgment and ethics and so on. Um, so Wellick had some complaints about he was portrayed in Booth's article. Uh, and their letters, through their letters, they respectfully sorted out this problem. But there's one passage um, from Booth's letter that makes a good summary of his position. So I'll read that, which I, I think is worth reading. So he writes, I have been trying to uncover the possibilities for critical discourse that are opened when we imagine a world in which the relation between your, Wellick's, phenomenology and, let us say, a fully developed psychologism, thinking a la I.A. Richards, so in which the relation between your phenomenology and a fully developed psychologism would not be one of kill or be killed, but rather a collaboration of diverse resources for clarification, exploration, and judgment. Such a pluralism would not reject the possibility of genuine knowledge within the terms of inquiry set within any one critical mode. So there's um, any particular monism, whether it's a phenomenology or a psychologism or um, a, a reader response theory or whatever, would not reject the possibility of knowledge coming out of another monism, right? So one monism, different kinds of knowledge are possible through different kinds of monisms, and that's a kind of pluralism, right? Uh, so in, in his book, also in his book, um, Critical Understanding, Booth talks about turning critical warfare into pluralistic inquiry. So he wants to get us away from um, kind of this attacking uh, mode where we're always attacking each other and trying to deny the validity of each other's views towards more of a pluralistic ethical inquiry. So this, uh, this all very much aligns, I think, with my own worldview, which has been influenced by things like Robert Wright's discussions of zero-sum and non-zero-sum games. So the, the success of a critical methodology does not necessarily depend on the destruction of its competitors. And in fact, it may depend on having strong competitors come collaborators that stimulate its growth and refinement. All right, so this is all for today. Um, concluding up here about Wayne Booth. Next, I will take a look at M.H. Abrams and his contribution to the debate. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening and see you next time.